This is RAF with Funtown and LA. <laughs> Ambassador coming to you straight live and direct from the jungle studios. Now, what I'm going to be launching today, uh, to be frank, isn't for the isn't for the likes or the you know people following me on IG, which is at the real LA21. If you want to, uh, it's for me personally. Uh, so I want to keep it to you rather quick. The intro. Um, Basically, every Sunday, it being the start of the week, uh, some people go to church, <laughs> some people nurse a massive hangover from the Saturday night before, other people love a good old Sunday session, which I used to love. Um, but regardless of where I'm at or what I'm doing, I always listen to blues music um, to start my week off. Uh, I work in a very uh, high-end corporate job in international trade, so to say that it's stressful is literally a complete and utter understatement. It's half the time to live in fucking hell, and the other time you're rocking a PlayStation and drinking beers, so it's either one or the other. Um, so what I want to do is, I guess, share with you over the Sundays in the coming weeks and months, uh, just about separate blues musicians, and y'all you know, just... Honestly, it's just for me just to have a little something on record um, that I want to do as opposed to just stuff that I'm observing and trying to be doing journalism or whatnot. So without further ado, what you just heard there opening up was the one and only Lightning Hopkins. Now, Lightning Hopkins is a very famous uh, blues musician first and foremost because he was really a storyteller. Uh, and that's what really made him initially quite famous was the fact that uh, he would have a very obscure style of playing in the sense that he wasn't really sort of stripped in the rhythm and he was kind of doing whatever he wanted to do. Uh, and as I go into his story, you'll, you'll learn that's more to do with his character as well. Um, but even that side of blues music, he became popular in the folk scene and just generally... Uh, until probably uh, Jay Prince and Ghetto Boys and Beyonce was, I, I feel could argue, one of the most famous musicians to come out of Houston. Uh, here's another example of um, his start to bring me my shotgun. <laughs> So what this uh, song's about is basically his um, his woman's uh, not being too good. So he's saying, "Well, bring me a, bring me my shotgun, and I'm going to settle it." And for me, uh, 
blues music, the reason why I love it is that uh, before the last couple of years where it was okay for men to be emotional and be considered what would be now like a sort of feminine traits, uh, blues music was the only music for a long, long time or that created the blueprint um, for men to express truly how they felt whether they were upset about a woman or whether they were needing money or they were happy or they were sad or whatever. Whatever emotions they had, they could lay it out. So uh, without further ado, let's go into who uh, Lightner Hopkins was. Lightner Hopkins obviously was born Sam Hopkins on a farm outside Centerville, Leon County on March 15, 1912. He would later say that one of his grandfathers, a slave, had hung himself in the misery and that his father Abe, a cotton and corn farmer, was killed over a card game when he was three. Sometime in 1915, his mother Frances moved him and his four other siblings to nearby Leona. Sam picked cotton of the brutal son. I actually have been uh, down through the Mississippi through the cotton fields and yeah, that would be generally fucked up. Um, even without the racism. It was a hard life made worse by the constant humiliations and intimidations of living under Jim Crow. Jim Crow was basically the laws that divided uh, blacks and whites within the South. Uh, the whites seemingly having a better life and the blacks just getting absolutely fucked. Uh, men being called boy no matter how old they were and not even being able to buy a Coke in local stores. Blacks had to make do with strawberry soda. That, so that's correct. If you walked into the milk bar, you weren't allowed to buy Coca-Cola if you were black. He told many stories of how he started playing the guitar. The best one, he nailed a piece of plank to a cigar box and strung it with some screen wire. One of his brothers, Joel or John Henry, gave him lessons, presumably on a six-string guitar, and Sam also banged on the piano organ in church. When he was eight, he went to a Baptist picnic in nearby Buffalo where the famous blues guitarist Blind Lemon Jefferson of nearby Freestone County was performing on a platform. Jefferson travelled all around central and eastern Texas, playing on street corners and at picnics and dances, drawing crowds wherever he went. He was a one-man band, pounding the rhythm of the low strings, the melody on the high ones, singing and answering the words with notes and the notes with words, standing in the crowd. Sam obviously took a shining to it, and uh, that's where it started to grow. Uh, he quit school and began hitting the road for long stretches, hitching rides and hopping trains all the way to Dallas, where he sometimes hooked up with Jefferson uh, and basically cruised around uh, learning the traits in the guitar. Uh, he also had an older cousin called Algat Texas Alexander, a boisterous street singer who spent time in prison. Uh, also, in those days, uh, African Americans were being locked up for, you know, even standing in the wrong place. At 18, Sam married a woman named Elma. Uh, they went on to have uh, two boys and two girls, and he started to play in the local plantations and all the local juke joints, being just sort of like small, I guess you would call them sort of small bars around the way, uh, and trying to basically make ends meet. Um, in 1939, Sam left the simple life behind, and eventually he went up to Houston and settled in the Third Ward, uh, where there's a little bit of, I guess, controversy is before he did that, uh, <laughs> he, was, uh, he was locked up, um, and basically his explanation was, I had to cut an old boy, uh, he was kind of mean, <laughs> and uh, he worked in the chain gang, Literally a chain gang uh, with, uh, you know, the chains around his ankles and on the side of the road just uh, 
doing the hard labour. He later on go to seeing how bad and how sad to be a fool. Um, him and his wife eventually sort of parted ways. When he was in the third ward in Houston for a while, he worked for the Missouri Pacific Railroad, laying rails and tires. He is also cotton-picking trip to Arizona with some friends, um, gambling, playing guitar, and bootlegging wine <laughs> to the Indians, uh, Native Americans. He returned to Houston and went into full-time playing music, uh, basically just sort of busking his way through. Um, and he was now known on Dowling Street, took his guitar on a bus that transported black folks to and from jobs in the white neighbourhoods, and he'd basically play songs for a bit of money, uh, and then afterwards, you know, even shoot a bit of dice <laughs> to try and win some cash. Uh, he started performing little juke joints, playing songs in his own way with a, with a own two metre and a standard two bar blue, 12 bar blues. Um, so to give a picture of it, he kind of had a very... Um, laid-back kind of traditional style uh, that wasn't too overtly complicated uh, as many would get once the you know, sort of the 60s and 70s when they went north to sort of Chicago and Detroit and whatnot. Um, so yeah, this is an example. So as you can see, it's a, it's a lot more sort of simplistic style that he was playing as opposed to later on in the series when we will uh, take you north to Chicago and you see the difference. Uh, so around this time, basically, he just sort of st uh, started playing around, um, uh, started doing his thing. In 1946, a talent scout for Ladder Records heard him playing on Dowling Street in Nevada and to Los Angeles. Uh, he'd been performing with a piano player named Wilson Thunder Smith. Uh, and basically, they went on to sort of record, and it became uh, quite popular recordings. It sold 40,000 records for Short-Haired Woman, but the time was a popular jam. Uh, and Baby Please Don't Gold sold 80,000. Uh, he would be known throughout the whole entire time of just basically like, didn't trust white people, didn't trust the record industry, didn't trust signing anything. So he did a lot of recordings um around about 150 songs alone for a dozen labels between 1946 and 1951. So I was like, oh, you know, give me a couple of bucks for dice and good times and money in my pocket. And, um, yeah, he just sort of went on from there. So he would sort of perform uh, and kept recording. Um, and then he made a lot of money and spent it. <laughs> so he was uh, enjoyed his gambling, drinking, uh, and he'd also love to sort of shout his boys rounds in the third ward. He was a king of Dowling Street in Houston and reveled in his fame. Much of the frustration of his record companies, he hated to fly and didn't want to go on package tours. He was comfortable at home, living in a rooming house, working jute joints at ice houses and covering with gamblers and hustlers. He would occasionally go back to Leon, Houston counties to perform. He was like Jefferson, barely known in the white communities but famous in the black ones, such as Crocker's Camp Street area. He would just walk and start playing remembers Frank Robertson and people would block the streets. There would be so many people that the store owners would run him off. He would just move up the street and do it again. 
And in the rest of America, however, his old-fashioned country blues was fading in popularity, and he stopped recording around 1956. Um, in towards the early 60s, there was basically like um, white university students and people into the folk music that basically went and found a lot of these old blues recordings and then in many cases just sort of travelled down through the southern states of America to find these guys and eventually um, get them onto recording, get them onto sort of folk music tours. Um, and yeah, a lot of them um, was a sort of genuine, a, a genuine love of the music, you know. I mean, of course, there's going to be crooks in the recording industry, but there was a lot of those guys around that just generally loved the blues music and loved the um, authenticity of it. Uh, so he kept on recording, um, but like I said, sort of hated to fly. We fast track a little bit, um, and Lightning we see was starting to influence a whole generation of uh, folk players trying to get the country with them of his finger picking. He was becoming an icon, the image of what a blues man looked and acted like. In 1964, he was talked into going to England for the American Folk Blues Festival, but he didn't seem to enjoy himself. In his first song, he sang about flying and how he terrified about the trip home, not even hanging out backstage afterwards. He preferred the third ward of Houston. Here I can be broken, hungry, and walk out and some will buy me dinner, he explained to a writer of the Houston Chronicle. It ain't always like that in a strange place where you don't know no one. His street corner days were over, and now he could play every night of the week if he wanted to, and joints in the third, fourth, fifth, and sixth wards, making 35 to $70 from the bar plus tips. His old Crockett friend, Frank Robertson, remember how Lightning wouldn't play for fun anymore when sitting around with his buddies. Um, we sort of fast track now to 1967, and this is actually on YouTube if you want to see it. The filmmaker Les Blanc came to Texas and persuaded Lightning Hopkins to let members of a documentary film crew him and film him in Centerville, Houston, but only after he suckered them into gambling away a large sum of money. So, yeah, so they basically kind of cruised around uh, his local area as he was just jamming to uh, a little bit of tunes. Babe, you got too many dollars. Lord, when you ain't got but just one wheel. So the documentary proved to be a relative success. It went for 31 minutes, and basically it's just him just chilling out with his people, going to a local rodeo, telling stories. Um, he tells a story about driving into a ditch to avoid hitting a pig and getting arrested for being parked on the wrong side of the road. The judge told him, well, boy, you you know better than that, and $500. And it's just uh, him at sort of like little barbecues and house parties and cruising around and seeing all family members and yeah definitely worth a watch for uh yeah just something completely different uh as the 60s sort of wound down lionel would hang out again around his usual stomping grounds in dowling street and uh watch his beloved houston astros play he'd sort of just go on to keep recording whenever he needed a bit of cash and there was still a large body of work uh still coming through within sort of the 60s right up to sort of the 70s um, by sort of the mid to end 70s, he wasn't really doing as much recording, but gigged a lot. Uh, and eventually, 
well, the sort of the good times caught up with him, and he passed away in uh, 1982 of cancer. But by the time he'd left, he'd already influenced the next generation of kids coming through, uh, some of which will discussed later on was the very famous musician Stevie Ray Vaughan and his brother Jimmy uh, who loved lightning and his music. They would say he was the wise cranky elder and they would sit at his feet, carry his guitar and do whatever they told him. You didn't mind it because he was lightning. He was always telling stories when he'd walk into a room, he'd let everything up. He always had to be the centre of attention on stage and off. If sometimes in the audience disrupted the performance, he'd stop everything and say, this is lightning's show. He was a tough old bird, not easy by any means, but I wouldn't trade any experience with him for anything. Uh, so, yeah, that was uh, the story of Lightning Hopkins. As you can see, he was a <laughs> loved to drink, loved to hustle, and loved to play dice, but at the end of it uh, really left us with an incredible body of work and showed uh, generations to come what it was like to have really an amazing... Um, storyteller and that's why for me on my sunday blues music i love to listen to a bit of lightning and got him on vinyl or whatever um for me on a more personal note, i find that it really kind of eases my soul the way that he plays and there's always um a haunting comfort when you listen to it uh so you know like i said the corporate rule is pretty hectic and i try to take my days off so i'm going to leave you with a little bit of um off his album, It's a Sin to be Rich. And I think it just sort of sums up <laughs> sums up Lightning beautifully. That he wasn't really about the uh, the wealth. He was more about just being a man of the people down to the third, third ward on Dowling Street. Mm-hmm.